Today's guest is Hiba Jamal, Palestinian-American journalist. I am based in Germany, so a lot of my work is around anti-Palestinian racism in Germany. They always keep me busy. They always tell you to be realistic. When you're under oppression, you don't really have a choice except to be hopeful, except to expect radical change, expect to be a part of that radical change. I also just came back from Gaza. The route to Gaza was completely traumatizing. This trip is only supposed to take five hours. For us, it took two whole days. Egypt, Sinai is one of the most militarized places on earth. No water, no food, no bathrooms. How complicit the Egyptian government is with the oppression of the Palestinians. Leaving Gaza, for example, is corrupt. There's something called Tansik, which is this official bribe service. The Egyptian military literally owns. You can skip all the checkpoints, profiting off of oppression. Egypt said TSA pre-check for Gaza. Right. <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 67 of the Palestine Pod, the weekly podcast where we break down the latest headlines dealing with Palestine from all over the world and bring you stories, commentary, and interviews with the aim of supporting Palestinian struggle for justice and equal rights. I'm one of your hosts, Lara E. You might know me from Instagram as at Gazan Girl, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mikey B. What's up, y'all? Mikey B on TikTok, Michael Scherzer on Instagram. And you can call me Mikey Intifada if you just murked one of your own thinking he was Palestinian. Yeah, awkward. Today's guest is Hiba Jamal, a Palestinian-American journalist and advocate currently based in Germany at NYC. Her work has appeared in 972 magazine, Mondo Weiss, amongst other major publications. Hiba, welcome to the Palestine. Thank you so much for having me. Hiba, give us an idea. What are you working on right now? What are the stories that inspired you and excited you? What is on your mind? Sure, yeah. So, well, as as you mentioned, I am based in Germany. So a lot of my work is around anti-Palestinian racism in Germany. They're, you know, they always keep me busy. That's something that I've, you know, constantly been tackling. But I also just came back from Gaza, actually. I was there for about three weeks and all that I've been thinking about is Gaza and my trip and, you know, covering it. Specifically the route to Gaza, which is was completely traumatizing and you know, way harder than I ever could expect. So that's actually what I'm focusing on, like, you know, telling the stories of people from Gaza, trying as much as I can to tell my story as well, because it was the first time I visited. We'd love yeah. for you to recap the journey and your trip and anything else you'd like to share. Yeah, sure. I mean, first of all, I, I never, as I said, I, I just, I never expected it to be the way it was. I mean, you land in Cairo and you hire a driver that's supposed to take you across the Sinai to the Rafah border crossing. This trip is only supposed to take five hours, right? For us, it took two whole days. I mean, I, 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 I did not, ex- I thought, you know, it would take, it would take, you know, a night, maybe a few hours, eight hours. It took us two whole days. Um, and that's because Egypt, Egypt, Sinai is one of the most militarized places on earth, I think. There's checkpoints every like 500 meters sometimes. I remember there was this one checkpoint. You drive an hour and a half across the Sinai and then you stop at this huge, huge line with like, like for us, it was over like 100 cars with Palestinians inside it. It was a huge checkpoint. We were supposed to cross a ferry across the Swiss Canal. And literally, Egyptian soldiers are supposed to inspect every single piece of luggage for 170 cars. And imagine in each van, there's like, I don't know, like seven members of a family, right? So you have Egyptian soldiers inspecting every piece of luggage. For us, it took 10 hours under like, you know, the Sinai sun. It was 
uh, I think it was like 100 degrees, 104 degrees or something. There's no water, no food, no bathrooms. It was complete hell. And it's it's so easy for the Egyptians to put something on the side, right? Because Palestinians, hundreds of them take this journey every single day. But yeah, they just they just didn't. There was nothing. They couldn't do anything. There's no service. There's no Wi-Fi. There's nothing. So we stood on the side of the road for over 10 hours until we were able to board the ferry across the Swiss Canal. That's just one part of the journey. And yeah, so super, super, super harsh. Did you go to Gaza as a journalist? No, actually, um, my family, so my husband has um, Hawiya from Gaza. So he has Gaza ID. So, you know, no one can really enter Gaza unless you're, you know, have prior authorization, like you're an international aid worker or you're a Palestinian with a, you know, Gaza ID, not even a Palestinian from the West Bank or Jerusalem. No, you have to have a Gaza ID. And yeah, so I'm a I was Palestinian from enter. Gaza. We don't have the Gaza ID. We can't go. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So you have to only like only if you have an ID and my husband did, so I was able to enter with him. So yeah, that, that's how, that's how I was able. I, was, I feel very lucky that I was able to, but that's the only, that's like the only way to how to. Yeah. Right. And did you, were you there during the latest assaults? No, I left only a few days before, but my mother-in-law stayed. So I stayed, you know, I went with, you know, my in-laws, my mother-in-law, my father-in-law and husband and my you know, then five month old son. And yeah, no, it was, it was super, super tough. I didn't, you know, fortunately left right before the latest assaults. My mother-in-law is still there, however. So it was super, super scary. And, you know, I, I just, I didn't know what to do. Like I was sitting in my house and just like checking my phone every two minutes. I don't know what you can do in these situations. It was, and now that I know the people, I know, you know, my, my family-in-law that lives there, I, I made, you know, connections i you know i know the people there it was completely different you know way worse than all the other ones just because i i know people and super super scary what was striking about Gaza to you during your visit i really went to Gaza and i could not tell that this is a place where like you know hundreds of people get killed by Israel. Like it was, it was that happy. Like it was such a place filled with joy and potential and happiness and people craving for, you know, a better life. Of course you see poverty. Of course you see buildings that are destroyed and and the floor. But at the end of the day, like I really felt that this was such a loving place and a beautiful place. Like, you know, if Gaza was just, if they just let Gaza be, I think it would be one of the best tourist destinations in the world, for example. Like it was, it was that of much of an amazing experience. Yeah, I think that was the most shocking to me. That's actually one of the reasons they keep destroying Gaza is because it is so amazing and people are thriving even under the harshest circumstances. And so when things start to get even just a little bit tolerable, they have to knock things back down they have to destroy buildings they have to murder people they have to destroy the morale that was built right because we talked about this in 2021 how they targeted centers of commerce right they they targeted like banks and commercial properties they are systematically trying to destroy the will and possibilities for living in gaza did you find joy in gaza 100 percent yeah, it was it was filled with joy. I mean, like I, you know, especially my family in law, you enter a room and there's like a party happening all the time. There's people whenever there's a wedding, you see like these caravans of people like, you know, the whole block is having a huge party and 
there's it's filled with joy and it's beautiful and i i can't wait to go back again really yeah i remember you posted a picture of your family enjoying the beach in gaza and I, and I, i got kind of emotional looking at it i was just so happy that you got to experience it yeah no me too definitely yeah can you talk to us a little bit about some of the stories that you're working on as a result of your trip to gaza Right. Yeah. So I mentioned that I, I I'm writing a story about specifically the journey there. Something that really resonated with me when I went there, and something that bothered me was how complicit the Egyptian government is with the oppression of the Palestinians, and you know how much their security cooperation with Israel just makes everything incredibly difficult for Palestinians living in Gaza. The concept of leaving Gaza, for example, is completely corrupt. I mean, there's something called Tansik, which is basically this official bribery uh, service where you you would have to give money to the Egyptians in order to leave Gaza. And usually it could be very, very expensive. You know, I mentioned that we went through with the with like this little van, right? There's this service called Yahala. It's this Tansik service where it, the Egyptian military literally owns so it's a private company that the Egyptian military owns. And what they do is you can skip all the checkpoints, right? So there was like, you know, tons and tons of checkpoints across the Sinai. You can skip all the checkpoints. You could, you know, there's the the actual border crossing hall. Skip all the lines, hours and hours and hours of waiting. You don't have to wait on them. There's this luxurious, like, I remember, I remember my husband was like, yeah, why don't you take a peek inside that room, right? We're sitting in this like filthy hall in the Rafah border crossing. He's like, take a peek inside that room. I'm like, all right, go inside the room. There's like a bar. There's like, you know, five, it's, it looks like a five-star hotel and we're sitting on like, like broken, filthy chairs. And I'm, it's just kind of like, okay, so you pay $700. It's $700 per person, sometimes even more when there's like an assault or something. So it's, it's, so it turns out to be thousands of dollars for Palestinians. Like they're profitizing off of oppression and like, it's just so, so yeah. So kind of co- like, I want to like my next thing is kind of talking about this is talking about how Egypt's private companies are just profiting off of, you know, Palestinians trying to live and trying to leave and trying to come home. So, yeah. Egypt said TSA pre-check for Gaza. Right. <laughs> Basically not even also, pre-check. Yeah. Also, it's like, hold up. There's a bar. There are a ton of people consuming alcohol over there. Uh, it was it was it was ridiculous yeah it was it was something extraordinary i mean mashallah this alcohol (laughs) yeah i you know i don't know if they were even serving alcohol i couldn't get in like i don't i'm not that rich how you gonna hate from outside the club you can't even get in (laughs) Right. right yeah yeah there was this one moment that i think was very very traumatizing for me was when we were online and you know, my husband's been standing on this line for five hours and it wasn't moving. And so uh, there was a line for like, they said that there would be a line for women and children, right, to go faster. And so I go with my son, who's like kind of is like asleep in my arms, standing on the line. My sister-in-law is also like in front of me. 
And essentially the military officer that's on the counter is like, I never said this line was valid. And people have been waiting on lines just to hand their passports to be stamped up, like just, just to, just to stamp the passports. We've been waiting online for like hours and hours. We go to this line. He's like, this line isn't valid. And people now are like super scared. They want to go back to the, you know, the, the spots that they left in order to go to this line. And so what happened ended up happening was something I can only describe as like a mosh pit, like, like, and there's kids all around, like kids almost like trampled under me. There's one lady, she couldn't hold her child. And she asked me to hold hers because she didn't want him to be hurt. And I remember my sister-in-law takes and people are just shoving and, and it's, it's just, it's absolute chaos, absolute chaos. I look over to uh, the military officers that are on the counter and they're smoking their cigarettes. They're drinking their coffee and tea. They're they're just looking at us and not saying a word. Like they just let complete chaos ensue. Yeah, it was it was completely horrifying. My sister-in-law had to raise Malik, my son, above her head in order for him not to be hurt or trampled or worse. And so everyone is crying. Everyone is screaming. Like like actually everyone. We were all terrified. And I remember there's this one moment where he literally looks at us, like the actual military officer looks at us and was like, "Look at you, trapped like cattle." And I turn and I want to say something and I want to like yell or jump the counter and punch him in the face. And my mother-in-law puts her hand like on my mouth and like holds me and like make sure I don't do something because if I do, um, I'd be arrested or probably worse. This was an Egyptian officer. Yeah. Yeah. This was all, yeah. this was all Egyptian. Yeah. Worst Travis Scott concert ever. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, basically, yeah. That's yeah. exactly exactly how it felt like. Yeah. I'm yes. so glad that that joke landed. <laughs> that was a risky joke for me. <laughs> As I was thinking it, I was like, ooh, if this bombs. It's no secret that the Egyptian regime is a totally anti-democratic, super repressive regime that is actively involved in the oppression of Palestinians by maintaining the immoral siege of Gaza. And participating in exactly some of you know what you've just described, I have friends and family that will tell me that interacting with Egyptian officers is sometimes feels worse than having to interact with the occupation soldiers. Hundred percent. Because yeah. you're supposed to be speaking the same language, you're supposed to be of the same faith, and yet the contempt with which they treat you, the, the absolute hatred almost with which they interact with you is something that is really, you can't explain. And, 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 you know, maybe we don't talk about it enough on the Palestine pod, but, you know, let there be no mistake, we are very much against the repression by the Egyptian regime of Palestinians and what they do to make it more difficult for Palestinians to reach their homeland. And it's also no secret that Egypt is one of, you know, the largest recipients of U.S. foreign aid after Israel. And, you know, Mondo Weiss reported actually today, August 20th, about a $1.3 billion weapons package coming from the U.S. to Egypt. And, you know, the title of the article is U.S. gives another $1.3 billion in weapons to Egypt's vicious regime to keep Israel happy. You know, the idea being that for decades now, the U.S. has been bribing Egypt to maintain good relations with Israel, 
And Egypt benefits by using that strength and weapons against its own people, against dissidents, and to maintain a strong position for itself in the region. And, you know, if you look even just internally at what Sisi has done to his own people, anyone who dares say anything against the regime, imprisoned, tortured, killed, period. And I definitely think that this chaos and incompetence is completely intentional. I mean, like there are so many ways where you don't have to wait hours on a line to hand over a passport, right? But of course. Because- I got into Scotland in about 20 minutes. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. But like, you know, so so I I definitely felt that this the, the waiting, especially on checkpoints along the way, right? Like if they're 500 meters from each other, it absolutely made no sense to me. And you wait five hours on one and another five hours on another, and they're not even a mile apart. It was completely intentional. It was just the concept of wearing out the Palestinian people so they don't try to leave and they don't try to, you know, either leave or return. Right. So so that was something that I, you know, I completely saw. And also it was completely random. You never know what you're going to get. It was it was really like you you go to a checkpoint. You don't know if the soldier is in a bad mood and in a, in a, in a good mood and no one knows what's going on. It's it's kind of like the logic of confusion. It's just you're just confused the whole time and you don't know what your experience is going to be like. I once read about a judge who sentenced people to jail more often if he hadn't had lunch so like after he came back from lunch people would get off people would get their sentences reduced but if he hadn't eaten a tuna sandwich somebody was doing life in jail probably it really it felt like that that's exactly that's exactly right yeah Yeah, I mean, I think what you're describing is arbitrary, right? There's no no consistency. And also, let's never forget how this current regime came to power, right? It was a military coup. They overthrew a democratically elected government. Uh, Israel got the U.S. to support the coup. And here we are, yet again, allegedly, after Egyptian people, like, bled in the streets of Tahrir Square, you know, giving their lives for the possibility of living under a democracy that accepts and you know promotes human rights and freedom of expression and all these things that we hold dear allegedly were in went basically right back to where they started were passed off to the next strongman you know after after Mubarak that basically you know and, and what was it all for nothing isn't it it's- crazy how quickly the united states can come up with a billion dollars when there's weapons involved it's like right. If you asked for a billion dollars for anything else, you'd get everybody in Congress being like, it's not possible. You know what I mean? But they're like, let's send rockets over. Yeah. But, you know, Michael, what's interesting is that they give this money and the, you know, money for weapons. Right. They have to buy it from the United States manufacturer. So it's interesting. It's like they give billions of dollars to like Israel and Egypt. And it's just kind of like. Yeah, so here's a billion dollars for you to buy weapons and stuff, but like you have to buy it from us too. It's it's so, an artificial subsidy, right? right. Like exactly. they give them the money so that the money comes back to it's us. It's like but a coupon. <laughs> it's right. like a multi-level yeah. marketing scheme, actually. <laughs> it's, it's like scheme. selling cutco knives. <laughs> right. Like, hey, have, have you guys heard of Herbalife? Like, <laughs> yeah. I have a friend who allegedly made 20 grand off of selling cutco knives one day. Right. Allegedly. I mean, I don't know. I didn't see it, but that's what she said. So, and she also yeah. tried to recruit me. I don't think, you know, but <laughs> okay, not a very good friend. <laughs> <laughs> I had a Mormon give me the same pitch. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
So also crazy how quickly the U.S. is, you know, happy to support a coup and, uh, you know, defy democracy when that entity will support the apartheid state. Right. Right. This is true. This is true. Did you guys know this, that there is a uh, Starbucks in CIA headquarters where they will not read anybody's name? So you get a situation where it's like, I've got a coup de latte for Kim Jong-un is a bitch. (laughs) This is true. Uh, Well, the first part is true. The second part was a joke. Glad I had to explain it to you again. Okay, we've been doing a podcast for over a year. (laughs) But how do you even know about the first part? I'm like curious. Oh, the first part? Well, I look like Edward Snowden, so I get the memos. (laughs) (laughs) But like a budget version. (laughs) You know what's interesting? At least the United States, they pay lip service to the concept of like, you know, democracy and like let there be peace or whatever germany is just like you know where it's just no screw that all palestinians they you know they basically deserve it almost it really is it really is like i currently live in a country where they you know it's just there's not even an effort to try to not be biased right there's not even like something anything right like if you publish something say like 50 palestinians died this last weekend you gotta add a sentence of like yeah but like you know it was because of islamic jihad provocation like there's there's no kind of like well-rounded anything where i live right now and it's 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 super frustrating and that's how i got as many writing opportunities as i did that's how i started journalism it's just kind of like you know what the hell's happening here Germans, famously empathetic people. The latest, one of the you know bigger stories that I've written was you know how Deutsche Welle, the German state broadcasting com- like news news uh, company, fired like seven Palestinian and Arab journalists like for like no reason, and two of them were just proven not to be anti-Semitic by a German judge. So. Yeah, it's 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 not a it's not a super cool place to live for Palestinians right now, even though Germany is one of the biggest places for Palestinian diaspora, like outside of the Middle East. So, yeah. Yeah. Not a great place for Jews either. Yeah. but And, you know, not even like so even even Jews who are anti-Zionist, like, you know, the, the whole concept of Germany is trying to like pay for their, you know, sins. Right. And so they just like bow down to whatever Israel says. But the problem is they treat anti-Zionist Jews exactly the same as they treat Palestinians. Like they will just blacklist them, arrest them, like brutalize them in a protest exactly the same as Palestinians. So it's not even like a respect. It's not even like identity politics in America. You say you're a Jew and you get all these privileges or you say you're, you know, BIPOC and you could like you know, speak for everyone. No, it's not even like that. It's just kind of like you have to be a certain type of Jewish person, certain type. You have of- to be one that supports fascism. Yeah, exactly. Then you're good. Can you actually talk about how there was Palestinian organizations in Germany that had their protest canceled? And then also the corollary of those anti-Zionist Jewish organizations that had their protest canceled? So after the the murder of Shireen Abu there was literally Jewish pro-Palestinian organizations who wanted to do a vigil. And the day before Nakba Day, the Berlin government said we will ban all Nakba Day protests, all pro-Palestinian protests. And literally, these Jewish organizations that were planning a vigil, they banned their vigil for the murder of Shireen Abu Akhle, like a Palestinian-American journalist. It wasn't even a protest. It was it was a vigil. Like it was 
a vigil, right? And and um, that's to the extent. And so when Palestinians did try to do something, they just wanted to do like a photo opportunity where everyone's wearing their kafia and their flags. They were literally like all arrested. Over 150 people were arrested. They had to take their IDs. And I don't know if they even pressed charges at this point. Um, one person had to go to the hospital because of German, oh, because of Berlin police, like slammed him on a on a car. Yeah, it was like they kettled everyone. Like they basically, if they suspect you were a part of the protest, they kettled you, and they every they took all their IDs, and so they would further charge them in the future. It was that, and literally a year ago, during the anti-COVID like anti-COVID measures by these like right-wing neo-Nazis, all they did was they put a tent and they said you have to cover your neo-Nazi tattoos, and they let them have a protest. It was crazy. I'm just kind of like, wow, this is wait, nice wait, priorities. So let me- let me get this straight. The German government is allegedly fighting anti-Semitism by using state power to brutalize Jews. Yeah. Shout and, out the German government. And also brutalizing Palestinians in the name of fighting anti-Semitism, but letting literal Nazis roam the streets. Yeah. And putting, Sounds good. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Germany, how they view it is that they believe that anti-Semitism in Germany is imported by the Arabs. They no longer have an anti-Semitism issue, even though in 2019, a far right white supremacist like went into a synagogue and, and killed a bunch of people. But neither here or there, they believe that literally anti-Semitism in Germany is not a problem, only if it's only when it comes to Arabs and the immigrant population. And that's how it is. Like they, that's that's the language that they use. They thought it was imported like olive oil. Like, what are you talking about? Imported. Yeah, it's it's a phrase you could search. It's called imported anti-Semitism. That's the phrase that Germans wow. use when it when it comes to anti-Semitism nowadays. They believe that they've That's... eradicated their own anti-Semitism, and the anti-Semitism that exists is because of the Palestinians and Arabs. Ah, it's the new wave of anti-Semitism, right? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Forget that old wave. We we did the old wave, obviously, right? The old wave was us. We messed up. You know what I mean? Get over it. All right. Now, the new wave, though, that's the Arabs. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So if any of you have ever studied psychology, I encourage you to Google the words deflection and projection. It sounds to me like Germany has a deflection problem. Uh, it is curious that they seem to believe that they have eradicated anti-Semitism and that Palestinians, who are not responsible for the Holocaust, let me say it again, are the reason why anti-Semitism exists in their country. It's really a distraction to constantly have to be dragged into these conversations about anti-Semitism. We don't ever really address it on the Palestine pod because it's not worth our time. It's so obvious that what we're talking about is Palestinians having rights. And if you can't understand that me having a right has nothing to do with not liking somebody or being hateful towards somebody because of the religion that they practice. If you can't tell that those are two different things, then we, we can't even be in a conversation with one another. If I have to constantly explain to you that a person having civil, political, and economic rights in their land is one thing, and somebody acting hateful towards somebody else because of their religious background is something else, there's no point of common you know, there's nowhere, there's nowhere to even begin to have a conversation. Hey, do you know want to do you want to know what uh, anti-Semitism is? Actually, it's when state power is exerted on Jewish people for just being Jewish. Right. <laughs> 
But you know why Germany does it? It's it's you know it's not like this innocent attempt to just be like, okay, Israel is the voice of the Jewish people, and like they actually believe that. No, yeah. what it is is that they're they're trying to build their military power to be a world power again. So like you know they can't do that because of the Holocaust. So what they do is they try to be like, all right, Israel's right in absolutely everything. So they pour billions of dollars right now into their military, and this is fairly new. So this is Germany just trying to like come back into the world stage and you know this this thing in the past is standing on them doing it and so they just kind of like let israel do whatever what do whatever they want don't call it a comeback we've been fascist for years <laughs> right. did you do a ted talk i think you did yeah i did do you want to tell us ago. about it or was it not relevant you know if it's not we can move on but i just wanted to give you a chance to oh yeah it's discuss not if- i don't even remember what i talked about oh really about. Yeah, that's kind of a flex, dude. Like, I did a TED talk and I don't even remember, bro. It was like, oh, okay, sick, dude. It was something about it was something about Palestine. You know, I I actually do remember. I I spoke about um, I spoke about the idea of of like you know how everyone talks about change, right? And how they talk about some impossible thing or something that is totally intangible. So they always tell you to be realistic, Mm. right? So um, my TED Talk was kind of about this concept of like, you know, when you're under oppression, when you're a Palestinian or when you're, you know, one of like, I'm, I'm, you know, within the civil rights movement, for example, you don't really have a choice except to be hopeful, except to expect radical change, expect to be a part of that radical change. Yeah. And so I, I spoke about that concept of the concept of like, we don't have a choice expect, except to be incredibly creative in how we try to liberate ourselves and hold on to that. That's so relevant. It's going to be the title <laughs> episode. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, no, nah, it's nothing. It's just like, you know. It's nothing. It's just the time. tone of the show. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Just, you know, just yeah. liberation. Yeah. Later. Yeah. I mean, I have to say, I always get these like messages whenever I consistently talk about Palestine. It's kind of like, you need to take like a, a relaxing day. You need to, you know, like just kind of mellow down and stuff. And I'm just kind of like, yeah, but like, I feel like I don't have a choice. Right. I feel like as someone living in the diaspora, I feel like it's too in tuned with my people. I don't feel like if they don't have a choice, I don't think I have a choice, right? And so, yeah, and so that TED Talk was out of all of this frustration of just kind of like, you know, I'm really tired of being called like a radical activist or whatever. I'm just someone who has hope and sees potential in my people. Amazing. It's like we have the energy now, right? And so while we have the energy, we should keep our foot on the gas as much as possible. One day we'll be old and we'll be tired. And that'll be the time when we can rest and pass it off to the youth. But right now, like we're the ones holding the what's what's it called? The Olympic thing. They pass it off. It's a baton. It's the baton. (laughs) The torch. Nobody's nobody's passing the torch during a fucking running (laughs) marathon. Like that's a fire hazard. You guys are wild. (laughs) I know y'all love fireworks and shit, but that is not happening. We both thought it was the torch. So (laughs) yeah. Okay. So I got to say the line because I fucked it up. Right now we're the ones holding the batons. So you know we got to keep running. Yes. You just published a very powerful poem on your Substack. Everybody should check out the Substack. 
it's a great resource for enlightening perspectives about Palestine. And I'd just love for you to take us through that poem. You want to read it for us? Oh, wow. Coming out of left field here, Michael. Yeah, that's like very intimate, Michael. <laughs> Give her a no, chance it's... to say no if she's not. <laughs> well, I asked her a question. I mean, she can say no, but she published well, it online. So it's not like it's secret. I didn't steal it from her diary. You know what I mean? <laughs> Michael's like, I actually checked under your mattress. I am in Europe right now. so <laughs> it's, it's not like I'm reading. <laughs> I am so, in your house. <laughs> so this I, you know, I was, I was, I, I think I published it like, uh, you know, the other day. It was something that I wrote like seven years ago. Like I wrote this a long time and I was looking through my phone notes and I'm like, damn nothing nothing has changed like that that's how I you know that's that's and I was just like wow like absolutely nothing has changed and so I published just published it and I was just like yeah seven years later and everything's exactly the same could read it to you if you want I mean I actually won a poetry contest with this poem so. oh wow oh now you have to read it Lex. all right I'm just like let me let me just we're gonna put that in your bio <laughs> poetry contest winner, high school poetry contest yeah, and nonchalant TED talk speaker. <laughs> oh man, I actually wrote that TED talk the night before. I was, that's why I read it off of index card. <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't memorize it. All right, are you guys ready? We're ready. Like spoken word, you got to snap. So, all right. Anyway. I woke up to the sound of bombs and my baby brother screaming under the rubble. What? Did you think I was going to start slow and gradually lead up to the words that no one wants to hear? As if pain and suffering come slowly, as if the colonizers give you a warning to the time of your death, as if blue birds, blue skies, and blue waters are the reality to a Palestinian sea when they wake up. It doesn't exist. Like Qariya Jimzu, the village where olive trees are plentiful and happiness a possibility. Sorry, was a possibility. Jimzu was ethnically cleansed in two days by an Israeli assault. Even in our dreams, black birds, dark skies, red waters. I woke up in a place less beautiful. I woke up in a place where tax dollars torture my other half. I live in a place where the clothes that I'm wearing covers me, yet strips me from my dignity, strips me from empathy. Because what is heard of us when Palestinian boys are taken from their homes and used as human shields? You hear that? Silence. Silence through the bombs that are dropped in Gaza. Silence through the cries of the wrongly persecuted prisoners. Silence through the pleads of help made by our mothers. Silence through the sounds of bullets entering our bodies. Silence. Because we love our material objects, our HPs and soda streams. We love our current lives and HDTVs. Blackbirds. Dark skies, red waters. I woke up in a cell. My name was Shafiq Al Hawamda. The year 1989, I was tied down. He sat on my chest. I felt as if my bones were breaking. You can only breathe, he said, if you confess to something you didn't do. I fell back asleep to only dream blackbirds, dark skies, red waters. Knock, knock. The door of the cell opens, and I pray that it's the angel of death. Irhamni, ya Allah, I shouted, all I wanted was to be free. All I wanted was to be. 2017. I wake up hoping it's different than before. Yeah, what I found when I opened the news, Syrian refugees are being washed ashore. Palestinian rights are still being ignored. Iraq is being thrown into another political war. Burma has more deaths than they account for. Yemen has a 9-11 every time someone steps out the door. 
it's not meant to be this way. Blackbirds, dark skies, red waters, it doesn't have to be this way. I ask you to feel, ask you to realize that the reservations that we set aside for action are intentional. Ask you to realize that the only way people oppress is if we, if we let them. Realize that we can wake up to bluebirds, the skies, blue waters. Thank you, thank you. Yes, that, that, that took the mood in a different direction. Yeah, I know. That's why, Michael, you can't you can't be throwing throwing poetry at these people. Honestly, this is like the only poem I've ever written. So, so the last poem. That's why yeah. I don't book slam poets on my shows anymore. You used to do that. <laughs> yeah. At comedy shows? Well, just like variety shows. Right, because they would kill the mood. Yeah. 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 yeah they would just- hard, hard act to follow. You know what I mean? Because it's like it's that and then it's like hey my name's michael dating is weird okay (laughs) (laughs) right yeah it's weird i wrote that poem and i couldn't write poetry after it was like so it's the only poem like i i really ever ever wrote i read your piece about abraham nabosi and i didn't realize he was 18 years old he's 18 man i he was i thought he was like 30 i thought he He was was like 30 he was born in 2003, and I think that oh, kind of blows my mind. And my so wild. God. Allah yarhamu, I, you know, may he rest in peace. I, that, the death of Ibrahim Nabrisi, I think, hit me in ways that I never expected, only because, and I write this in my piece, it's kind of like, we always hear that people die. We hear that children die. We hear, we hear, you know, every, like, resistance fed, we always hear about their deaths, but what's crazy is that we never hear their last words. And I think yeah. it was the last words that he said. And it was what he said that made me like, you know, never forget him, you know, and, and never forget the story. And so his story. So, yeah. And and maybe if you want to tell your viewers about him. Probably- I'm, so we, we've definitely um, in the last couple of episodes, we've we've started to share a little bit of his story. We covered how he escaped from on his life by the occupation. We covered when he was finally killed by the occupation. A brutal raid. Yeah, thanks for listening to the pod. Who's <laughs> <laughs> oh, putting me on blast? Okay. Yeah. No, but I, I think your point is is really wise and and really thoughtful. We don't often know what the last words of those who are murdered in the fight for liberation, trying to free Palestine fighting for their rights. We don't know what their last words are. And the fact that Ibrahim called his mom uh, and, and, and he, you know, he said to her, I'll read, I'll read his words. He said, I love you so much. If I'm martyred guys, I love my mother, take care of the homeland after I'm gone. And my final will to you on your honor, don't let go of the rifle on your honor. I'm surrounded and I'm going towards my martyrdom, my martyrdom. Pray for me. Yeah. And, and I think what's interesting also is that, they think people like that, they, you know, oh, they're, they're so ready to die at any moment's notice and they, and they crave death or anything, right? This is, this that's is racism. Point of this that's act. just racism. Right. These, that's these just anti-Palestinian racism. And we need to just right. say that. These, these are talking points of the Zionists of like, oh, you know, these, these fighters, these terrorists, they just, you know, they instill the young people, the concept of martyrdom. And now everyone wants to be martyred. No, not really. It's like they crave life. 
they crave life so much that they're willing to risk everything for it and and that's what ibrahim meant to me is that he he wanted a better life for his mother for the people around him for the next generation and he was only 18 years old and and if a young palestinian young adult could like you know it affects him that much that he picks up a rifle in order to to fulfill on that i think that's incredibly powerful and it's something that we should honor and 100%. the idea idea of us not honoring resistance fighters i used to not you know i used to not say anything because you could you know you could risk your job you could risk your livelihood if you say that you support the palestinian resistance by any means necessary but at this point it's just like if you don't honor him, then you're not doing anything really for the Palestinian liberation. So that comes from the Zionist propaganda, right? The idea that we have to be good victims, the idea right. that we have to play by their rules, the idea that the only good resistance is nonviolent resistance, when in fact, right. we know that that's a lie because they repress all forms of resistance, exactly. you know, whether it's armed or not armed. The idea that even decades and decades of nonviolent resistance have led us absolutely nowhere. That includes negotiations and diplomatic efforts and all of this. Right. The idea that they are the most violent entity in exactly. this whole process, and yet they have the audacity to condemn our attempts to use resistance to free ourselves. Yeah, um, they're like, hey, hey, we stole all this land with guns, but how dare you pick one up? Yeah, and we have nukes, but how dare you throw rocks at us yeah or have have this rifle like what what are we talking about here we don't have nukes like they're the only nuclear power in the middle east like why why doesn't anyone talk about that exactly so but that's all from because when you do talk about it you disappear (laughs) you end up in a suitcase in a dubai hotel room (laughs) (laughs) oh my god it's so true it's not even jokes at this point. Yeah, this no, what it's, happens. Not. Yeah. it's not. It's no, not. No, I'm jokes. actually just reporting the news. I'm not <laughs> writing jokes. <laughs> but, you know, here's the thing. You can't deprive people of their freedom and expect them to lay down and die. We are human, just like everybody else on this planet. And we deserve life, just like everybody else on this planet. And you can't deprive us of it and expect us to accept it and expect us to say, Oh yeah, no, that's okay. That's fine. You can, you can take our land. You can take our, you can rob us of our identity. You can separate us from our loved ones. You can jail us. You can do all of that. You can torture us. You can murder us. You can drop bombs on us, whenever you feel like it. You can mow the lawn. You can impose a siege. You can do all of that, but we're just going to hold, you know, a, a banner or like a sign at a protest. And we're going to wait for you to decide whenever that, you know, happens to stop. Right. That's not yeah. how this works. That's not how anyone has ever freed themselves. It's completely backwards to, to think that, you know, if, Palestinians did were not armed, did not participate in armed resistance, that Israel would not do what it's doing in Gaza, for example. It's complete, it's complete bullshit. Like that's just absolutely not true. Like if we look, if we look, there was actually Israeli settlements within Gaza. People don't know this. Like people, people really they they see, oh, you know, if if Hamas wasn't there, if whatever wasn't there, then you know Gaza would be free. That's just not true. When Israel was in Gaza. Up until 2005, there was settlements in Gaza. There was checkpoints. Palestinians were not able to go to the beach. That's five minutes from their house. I know people that were not, you know, they were telling me, they were recounting the, the, the moments when Israel was within Gaza, like actual settlements. And they told us that, like, you know, because of the checkpoints, they couldn't see their siblings that were just five minutes away for over 10 years. 
and 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 that's something that people don't realize is if it wasn't for armed resistance israeli settlements and checkpoints would still be in gaza right now but then also because israel evacuated its settlements from gaza ever since 2005 they have used that as an opportunity to pound gaza from the sky exactly and so you know armed resistance or not it doesn't matter because the settler colonial entity is on a mission to implement its project. And it's going to do that regardless of how we, as its colonial subjects, as the people that are under its power, are going to behave. Um, Yeah, they tried to colonize Gaza in the same way that they've been splitting up the West Bank, and it just didn't work. And so now they're like, oh, okay, we're going to drop bombs then. How about that? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's crazy that like the Zionists will say that Palestinians are taught to hate, you know, when it's like, have you ever seen the inside of an Israeli school? Who is chanting death to Arabs in the street? You know, like it's not the elderly, right? It's these, <laughs> it's these youth. It's these yeah. weirdo fascist kids. What's very dystopian is that they're very able to detach themselves from the crisis. Like they're able to think about a hundred thousand other things, whereas Palestinians, the only thing they can think about is the occupation. And so when they're like, oh, you guys are so obsessed with us, you know, I- I've seen this talking point, you uh, Palestinians are so obsessed with us. We, we're just living our normal lives. Exactly. Like, exactly. Like you're exactly proving my point. Palestinians would love to live normal lives if you, you know, outside of your wall and your checkpoints and your bombs. It's that's precisely the point. Yeah, and the Israelis, also, the Israelis are worried about traffic. And yeah. it's like you got private roads. You've got segregated roads. You're right. worried about the traffic on your segregated roads. Yeah. It's also a really awkward flex by an apartheid state to be like we're just living our lives where everybody is in the military. Like those are just our lives. Can you imagine if somebody was like, the line is too long at this whites only water fountain. (laughs) You know, I feel like that's how it is. You know, it's it's, yeah, basically. And then also there's like another thing about teaching them to hate, like the Zionist kids, they go to these weapons expos like at before they're even born. You know what I mean? Like you got fetuses, playing with AK-47s. Like, what's going on? I have a friend who grew up in the apartheid state and then moved to back to the U.S. Her parents were originally American, and then they moved there, and then they moved back. And she spent some of her early years in elementary school there, and she talked about the militarization that, that begins as early as kindergarten. You know, visits from the occupation army, and, you know, let's show you our guns, and... And look at us, we're so strong. And Bro, the starts... Occupation Army tried to recruit me in America. And I was like, nah. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, if I'm going to commit war crimes, I'm going to do it for the United States. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that is an awkward deal. Like, come die for us. Although you won't die. You'll just sit in a control room and, you know. Well, you will die if they mistake you as a Palestinian. <laughs> True. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the pod and sharing your perspectives, your stories, everything you're doing. We appreciate you so much and we respect you so much. And uh, you're just such a light in such a dark time. So. Thank you for your time. No, thank you guys. Really, um, I had so much fun, and um, I could—I I feel like I could say and talk to you guys for another few hours. But yeah, thank you, thank you guys so much again, folks. That's been another episode of the Palestine Pod. Thank you all so much for listening. Go ahead and check out our website 
www.palestinepod.com. Follow us on Instagram at the Palestine Pod. Send us an email at palestinepod at gmail.com and check us out on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash Palestine Pod. That's been another episode of the Palestine Pod. Thank you all so much for listening. Have a great day.